I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 11, actually all of chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, it's 10 verses. And uh, so why don't you, if you can find your way there in your copy of the scripture. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the black Bibles from the chairs around you. Uh, or you can follow along with me. Uh, the words to Exodus 11 will be up on the screen. But before I read it, I, because it fits into the story here of Exodus, just real quickly, where are we at? Exodus, the events of Exodus happening 14, 1500 years or so before the birth of Christ. Israel is in Egypt. God has determined to take his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, Moses has been born. Pharaoh has been warned. And now up to the beginning of Exodus 11, there have been nine plagues to convince Pharaoh uh, to let the people of Israel leave Exodus. And there's one remaining plague left, and that's the angel of death. And, of course, maybe you know how it goes, but Pharaoh up to this point has refused to let the people of Israel go. And Exodus 11 is the final warning of, the, of Moses, really, of God through Moses to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt of what is about uh, to happen. I hesitate to say this, but here we go. Uh, in the movie The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the final invasion of the evil forces of Mordor is they're attacking Minas Tirith, and it looks like the war is lost, and it's, it's beginning to start, I should say, and Gandalf said this to one of the little hobbits because it's the peace, it's the calm before the storm, and the hobbit is, of course, worried that he's going to die, which is very likely. And Gandalf says it's the great deep breath before the storm. And that's Exodus 11. It's the deep breath, the sudden pause before all hell breaks loose. So let's read Exodus chapter 11. With that in mind, why don't we stand one last time? Join me as we stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. Every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who, excuse me, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has and never will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! You and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That way my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. 
out of his land. All right, this morning we're going to look at Exodus 11. We just read it, so you say, well, what else is there? But maybe a couple of things. There's a difference between uh, a new relationship and a relationship that has gone for, on for a while. If you're married, you might notice that after having been married for a few years or a few decades, it's very different than what your relationship was like when you had first met. It's not better or worse. I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's different. When you first get to know someone, there's a certain uh, amount of exhilaration and excitement and newness to it. And when you know somebody a long time, maybe some of that newness and exhilaration is gone, but there's other things that have replaced it. We might say, though, that over time, one of the things that we have to be careful not to lose in any relationship is the sense of wonder. The sense of wonder of having met someone, of meeting someone that we connect with, that we know that we love, whether it be a spouse or a friend or whatever. And what we have here in the book of Exodus is sort of the beginnings. This is the beginning of God drawing his people out of Egypt, and this is the wonder of it. This is the the ten mighty movements of God before they're drawn out into the wilderness. And we're going to quickly see in the book of Exodus that that wonder is going to fade real quick. The newness of God having saved us out of Egypt is going to fade real quick as suddenly we find ourselves out in the middle of the desert. And we're hungry. So today, the title is very simple, The Wonder of God. And I'm going to give you three things about the wonder of God we have to remember from this passage, especially as we know we're going to head out into the wilderness. First thing, first three verses of Exodus chapter 11. The wonder of God in God's favor. Notice that God said to his people, the people of Israel, he is going to be favoring them, specifically in their relationship with the other Egyptians, but there's a reason for his favor. Have you heard of the Hershey's Chocolate Company? I don't know if you've heard of them. If you haven't, you know, while you're sitting, you can Google it. Who is this Hershey's Company? One of the biggest chocolate manufacturers and sellers in the world. But I don't know if you knew who owns or controls the Hershey's Chocolate Company. Of course, it was founded by Milton Hershey. He and his wife didn't have any children. So he and his wife started a school, which is now called the Milton Hershey School there in Pennsylvania, and it intended to serve students who had need but who otherwise might excel, students who found themselves in difficult circumstances, but all things being equal, they could do very well in school and do well for themselves, and so it's a residential school. So a student that applies to the Milton Hershey School moves there, and it's a residential school, there's no charge for it. Milton Hershey School is one of the wealthiest schools in the world because when Milton Hershey died, he just gave everything he owned to the school. The trust fund for the Milton Hershey School, which is a K-12 boarding school, is a little over $13 billion. They're doing okay. They don't have all of the shares of Hershey, just 40%. But they control it because nobody else has that much share. So the school basically owns the company of Hershey. So every time you buy a Hershey chocolate bar, in some sense you're supporting the school. Not that they're worried about whether or not they can afford uniforms this year. They have $13 billion. They could have gold-plated uniforms. They would have chocolate-plated uniforms. Of course they would have chocolate. I wouldn't have gold. It's ridiculous. Here's the thing. When Milton Hershey set up his trust, when he donated this, he had a very intended purpose 
for what he did. He wanted to provide the ability for a first-class education for students who would be able to take full advantage of it, but otherwise wouldn't be able to. So he showed favor, but it wasn't in any sort of way. He said, I have a particular purpose of how I want to favor. As we look at God working in the lives of the people of Israel, he is showing them favor, but it's not a blank check. He's saying, I have a particular purpose for which I want to show you favor. He gives them unearned favor. They hadn't earned it, but it has a very narrow purpose. Look in the verse 3 verses of Exodus 11. He says, I'm going to do a plague, and when they drive you out, ask your neighbor for golden clothes. Ask them for silver. Ask them for jewelry, and I'm going to give you a favor. So when the people of Israel go to their Egyptian neighbor, they're going to say, can I have your gold? Because of God's work to favor them, and because of all these plagues, the Egyptians are going to say, how much you need? I need $100. Here's $1,000. The, in a very real way, the people of Israel on one day are impoverished slaves. The next day, they are one of the wealthiest nations on the, the planet. God favors them with a blessing of uh, clothing, of gold, of treasure. And God is saying, I am now going to plunder your enemy who has been plundering you for 400 years. I'm going to give you wealth you did not earn. I am going to give you funds you did not have before, nor could you have gotten them on your own had you tried. This is God's favor. It's unearned, but it has a very important purpose. He is intending to do a work in the lives of Israel that has a purpose. Now, as you might expect, they don't get it right, at least not at first. If you want to, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. They've gone out into the wilderness Moses has been called up onto the mountain with God and is receiving the law of God. Moses has been up there some time, maybe 30, 40 days. Exodus 32, verse 1, the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain. Who said Moses was delayed? Not God. Was Moses late? No. Was God late? No. Did the people think Moses was delayed? Yes, because they had a timetable that didn't take God's plans into consideration. When they saw Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together, and they got Aaron, and they said to him, Get up, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, we don't know what became of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are on your ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Quick question, where did they get those rings? From the Egyptians. Did they earn those rings? No, they just were given to them, plundered by whose favor? God's favor. Unearned, but with a particular purpose. So the people took off the rings of the gold in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he used an engraving tool, and he made a golden calf. Listen to this. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They took the, the plunder, the favor of the Lord, and then dedicated it and made a pretend God. And ascribed to pretend God all of the glory that should have been going to 
You know the God on that mountain that looks like a volcano right now? So the gold of God's favor was used instead to make an idol of their own design, an idol of their own worship, an idol of their own pleasure. They worshiped the, the idol, then they got up from uh, eating, and they had a bit of a party, and we'll leave it at that. This was all an effort to take God's favor and serve their own pleasures, their own heart's desire, in essence, to have a God who serves their pleasures alone. God's favor is unearned, and it has a purpose. I think they missed it. What do you think? What was it for? Turn over to Exodus chapter 36. Excuse me. Among other things, besides also funding their travels, here's one of the purposes of their treasure. Exodus 36. Bezalel. I had I practiced pronouncing the name, and now it's B-Dog at this point. And Aholiab, I don't know why I can do Aholiab, but not Bezalel. I'm getting the emphasis in the wrong place. So these two guys and all these craftsmen who God had gifted with craftsmen and skill and intelligence began to work on the tabernacle. So God had given Moses up on the mountain the plans for his tabernacle, the place where people would worship God, by recognizing they were sinners and by recognizing that God would make a means for their redemption, which is through blood. So God says, I want a, wor a place of worship where you will recognize you are a sinner and where you will recognize that I will have relationship with you when your sin is atoned for through blood sacrifice. And so Moses called the craftsmen and all of those whose hearts were stirred up to do the work. Now they've got to work. Where did they get the stuff to work on? This is Exodus, just one chapter before, verse 29 of Exodus 35. All the men and women and the people of Israel whose heart was moved, they brought everything to the work that the Lord had commanded. So through a free will offering, they were going to provide to build the tabernacle. Same treasure, right? Did the people earn the money to build this tabernacle. No, God had favored them with the Egyptians with clothing and with gold and much fabric and much yarn and much gold and much silver was needed to construct the tabernacle. So the people, through the favor God had showed them, were going to worship God by uh, acknowledging their redemption uh, through him. So the craftsmen were brought, they got all the gold together, all the clothing together, all of the fabric, and they began to work on the tabernacle, and work is progressing along. They had a giving campaign, and everybody got an email every third Tuesday saying, don't forget to make a pledge. Actually, that didn't happen. They said, let's build the tabernacle. Look what happened. Verse 3, they received from Moses the contribution the people of Israel were bringing, the gold, the fabric, the yarn, the clothing, and they kept bringing freewill offerings in every day, so... All the craftsmen were doing the work building the tabernacle. And they said to Moses, verse 5, the people are bringing too much. We've got enough. Tell them to knock it off. So Moses gave the command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, don't bring any more in. They had to say, please stop. We, you're, you're given too much. There's no more need. The house of the Lord is provided for the people of God were restrained from giving. So on the one hand, God had favored them that they might uh, provide for themselves 
for the work of God, that they might recognize God has redeemed them and they worship him at the tabernacle. And there's two ways they could miss that favor, because it was unearned and had a purpose. At first, they missed it and said, I have received this, so therefore it is for my pleasure. And so they make a calf. But that's not why God had provided their needs. He had provided for the needs that he might provide for them a place to worship him, recognizing their need for redemption. God showed them favor, not that they might be wealthy. God showed them favor that they might have a relationship with him. It was unearned, but it had a very clear and intended purpose. Keep this in mind. How many of these folks got to spend what they earned in Egypt in the promised land? None. Because none of them went. The only two guys who got to go in who were over 20 years old were Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else who was over 20 years old is going to die in the desert. They're going to die clutching their baubles. They're useless. What do you do with a million dollars worth of treasure in the middle of the desert? You carry it. That's what you do with it. God's favor has a purpose, and they had missed it. And because they missed the God of the favor, the favor did them absolutely no good. A couple of other verses on this, and then we'll move on from God's favor to God's plan. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. And you're saying, I did not know there was a book named Haggai in the Bible. There is. If you're not sure where Haggai is, look in your table of contents. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius the king. Oh, that's when it was. Okay. In the sixth month on the first day, in case you weren't clear, Haggai came to the prophet Zerubbabel, which is an awesome name, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of the hosts. The people say it's not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. What's going on? The people of Judah had been taken out of Judah and had been living in Babylon, and now they were beginning to return back, and they were getting themselves settled, and they said, you know what? We need to make sure we have a place to recognize God has redeemed us, and we worship the God of redemption, and everybody said, I'm not quite settled yet. Let's do that later. And Haggai is now coming and saying, some of you are saying, it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word came to Haggai, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the temple itself lies in ruins? Consider your ways. You have sown a lot of seed, but your harvest is very small. You eat, but you're always hungry. You drink, but you never have your fill. Your clothes are full of holes. You put money in your pocket, and it falls out onto the ground. God says, think. You are holding on to everything instead of seeking my purposes, and the result is your stuff isn't going as far as you thought it would. One other place we'll read, and then we'll move. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. might be a verse that's familiar with you. Malachi, or also known by many as the great Italian prophet Malachi. I don't know where I got that joke. It's not mine. If it were really funny, I'd say it's mine, but it's more like a dad joke. Malachi says this, will man rob God? You're robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? 
in your contributions to the temple. You are cursed because you're robbing me. Bring in the full tithe to the storehouse and there be food that you might have food. Put me to the test and see if I will not bless you. All God is saying is this. I have shown you my favor in redemption and my favor is unearned. Please enjoy it, but recognize everything I do in your life as an act of favor and redemption is an act with a purpose. It is not intended merely for us now to have better means to appeal to our own appetites. God is saying, I am giving you purpose that you might do the work of redemption in the world around you. Instead of seeking false worship and selfishness with the favor that God has shown us, what he is saying is seek God's purpose in the favor God has shown us because his favor is unearned but always has a purpose for our life. God's favor to us always has purpose. And here are the two purposes, to worship God and to celebrate his redemption. The favor God has shown me with the time I have on planet Earth the favor God has shown us with the relationships he has given us with friends and family, co-workers, neighborhoods is intended to be used by us to worship God and recognize he has redeemed sinners into relationship with him. The treasure he has given us, whether it be resources or funds, not merely to please ourselves, but rather to worship God and say, how do I recognize he is the God who has given me everything and I don't deserve it, and I want to recognize that he has saved sinners like me from the curse. Now, in 2013, one of the former board of directors of the Hershey Trust uh, filed a lawsuit against the Hershey Trust that is controlled by the school. And the issue was this. He said some of the transactions of the trust weren't above board. Namely, they had purchased a piece of property and overpaid for that piece of property, as many trust funds do. They make investments to try and keep the fund going. But they had paid for this piece of property, and he felt that they had overpaid for the piece of property. It just so happened that this piece of property belonged to another member of the board. Yeah, so it's not the end of the world. They went from $13 billion to still $13 billion. They're okay. Don't worry. The kids are fine. They've got chocolate uniforms still. You know, they investigated and they finally determined, you know what, they didn't do anything wrong. There was nothing wrong here. So keep buying the Hershey's. But they made them make some changes to make sure that the trust followed its purpose. That's what they did. They said, listen, you've got some things you need to tinker with here to make sure you're following your purpose. Here's the thing. All of the favor God has given to us, family, friends, finances, stuff, he gives it to us in trust and he simply says and it calls us as an act of worship to say what is the purpose and is it merely provided that I might fulfill my appetites and the Bible's warning is clear no it's not for that it is to be satisfying but mostly because the God who is good enough to save us is the one who favored it with us the question we must ask when we recognize God has favored us hasn't he the question we must ask as an act of worship is merely this, for what purpose? For what purpose has he favored me? And then seek that God might give us the strength to be faithful, to be purposeful with the trust he has 
given us. The wonder of God, he has favored us. Man, we are lucky, aren't we? If you don't know that you're lucky, you are. Ask the guy next to you, he'll tell you, man, you're lucky. Because everybody thinks the guy next to him is real, real, doing real well, and we're doing terrible. We're doing great. I haven't missed a meal on purpose in weeks. On accident. I haven't missed it. I've got to be honest, I haven't missed a meal. And if I miss one, I make it up, so don't worry, I'm fine. I know I can tell you're really worried. The wonder of God. God's favor, unearned, but it has a purpose. Look at verses 4 through 8 of Exodus 11. God's, the wonder of God God has a plan to redeem us out of this world into his family. Exodus chapter 11, verses uh, 4 through 8. Moses went and gave his warning to Pharaoh, at midnight, the firstborn in all of Egypt will die. If your feet are in Egypt at midnight and you're a firstborn, you're going to die. Period. Egypt at that point became a land under the curse. The curse was this. At midnight, all the firstborn were done. Now, we're going to cover this in more detail next week as we talk about the Passover. The way in which you ensured that curse passed over your home was to obey God by sacrificing a lamb and putting blood on the door. And so you could be in the land of the curse, but redeemed out from under the curse by obeying God in the Passover. We're not going to cover that in detail this week. That's next week. But God says, now in Egypt, there is a curse. There's two ways to avoid the curse. Don't be in Egypt or have God pass over you. How have you read this story? Probably not. Uh, but there was a guy sitting in first class in the airplane. As you know, first class people get to get on first, apparently. Um, I'm usually real careful when I'm walking down the aisle of the airplane with my bag. I don't want to bump people. I'm real conscientious, except in first class. I just throw it all around. <laughs> oh, did I knock your champagne over? <laughs> my bad. Um, I'm kidding. I don't do that. Don't do that. That's rude. Anyway, this guy was sitting there, and a woman walks by heading back to coach, and she was, had her baby with her, but her baby had uh, tubes and oxygen and whatnot on her and and she walked back and, and sat with her baby back in coach, and he asked the uh, lady, he said, you know, could you find out what the story is with that? That seems that traveling with a baby who doesn't appear to be in good health. So she came back, she said, well, it turns out she's going on a routine, she does this every now and then, she flies from here to there, and she, the baby has to get treatment, and everything's okay, but they, they gotta do these treatments, kind of a pain to have to fly, and he said, you know what? She can have my seat. Can you go and see if she will trade seats with me? She can sit here, and I'll go back and I'll take her seat, in coach. And so, of course, the lady goes back, and of course, she accepted the seat. I mean, why wouldn't she? She was very thankful, let the guy know she was very thankful for it. So he sat in coach, and she sat in first class with her child and was able to enjoy a little more room, a free meal, uh, maybe a glass of champagne. Here's the thing. Now, I know this sounds like, thank you, Captain Obvious. She couldn't sit in first class if she didn't leave coach. Is there a way for her to enjoy the first-class seat that he offered her while at the same time staying in coach? Have you figured out a way? No, there isn't. Would, and, and the other thing is, why in the world would she want to, right? Why in the world would she want to remain in coach when she's been offered the opportunity to sit in first class? And of course she didn't. So here's the thing. God has a plan. The plan is to redeem people out of this world into his family. Illustrated in Egypt, he wants to redeem his people out of the curse of Egypt 
into his family, the people of God. And we're going to see next week when we talk about the Passover, it wasn't just Israel. A whole host of Egyptians and other folks became people of Israel that night. They said, we're in. We no longer are who we are. We're going to join the people of Israel because they have come out from under the curse. God's plan is to redeem us out of the world into his family. He tells Egypt, at midnight, the firstborn will be died. Will die. The only way to avoid judgment is to be redeemed out from under the curse, out from under the judgment, and that requires that you be redeemed out of Egypt into the people of God. That's the only way to do that. Now, why would you want to stay in Egypt? That's the place of death. That's the place of slavery. What, doesn't it make perfect sense that you would want to leave the place of slavery and the place of death and enter the place of God's favor, the people of God? Wouldn't that make sense? Yes, I know. You can tell I'm setting you up. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. people of God have made their way out into the wilderness. Not only did they get hungry, but God provided for their hunger through manna and quail. They have, he has provided for water. And here's what they say in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. They're not even starving. They have already been eating the manna. Here's what it says. Now the rabble that was among them, wherever you go, there's the rabble. There they are. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, I don't know who the rabble is, you know what that means. <laughs> it's you. I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. Some of you are saying, pro-rabble. I'm on. Okay, anyway. Uh, they had a strong craving. What does that mean? They had a strong craving. Were they hungry? No. This is when you've just had dinner. You've eaten until you can't walk. Then you go sit down and turn on the TV and you go, I think I need a snack. Let's go get a blizzard. And the people of Israel wept again and again. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. It didn't cost us anything except for slavery in our lives and our children. Oh, the cucumbers. Now, i got to be honest. I have never, in all my hunger, said, oh, I need a cucumber so bad. But <laughs> the melons, the leeks, the onions, oh, the garlic. Now our strength is dried up. And now there's nothing to eat but this manna that God gives us for free. See, now all of a sudden they've left the land of slavery. They're now in God's favor, being provided for day in and day out. And what are they saying? Oh, coach was so good. Because in coach, I was in charge. Up here in first class, God thinks he's God. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, more of the same, but let's just look at it very quickly. Exodus 16, 16, verse 3, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, not this time that we could go back to Egypt and enjoy free fish and garlic and leeks and cucumbers. This is what they say, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now, under the favor of God, they said, oh, I wish I was a dead body. I wish I was under the curse in Egypt. To be redeemed into God's people, to re be redeemed by God's wonder, to be favored by God, is to enter into God's plan, which means we leave here and go there. We're redeemed out of this world 
into his family. To be redeemed out of this world is to say, that's behind me. What's ahead of me is God's promises and his faithfulness. We move from a place of judgment into a place of family. But you cannot stay in Egypt and go to the promised land. And you cannot go to the promised land unless God is God. And he is the one who will provide. To be redeemed is to move out of this world into the family of God and to count this world no longer as our home, but to count the home that God is preparing for us through Christ as the only home we anticipate. This is what the New Testament author James said in James chapter 4, recognizing our own hearts are no less fickle than the people of Israel. Here's how he described the people of his church. You're not going to like this, just so you know. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the command. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. What he's saying is... You want it both ways. We want to have friendship with the world and be the king of this universe and have everything this world has to offer while at the same time being in the Lord's family. And he's saying those two don't go together. To be in the Lord's family is to be redeemed out of this world and to view this world as no longer our home. To be redeemed is to move from this world to anticipating the place we have to come. And James says, be careful. Our friendship with the world will drag us down spiritually. How many times have we told ourselves, you know, this isn't wrong, and that's fine, it's fine. And then pretty soon a few months go by, and we're all wrapped up into it, and we can't get out of it. God came to Abraham, and if you don't know who Abraham is, he's back in Genesis. God calls Abraham, and he tells him he's going to have children, and he's going to have uh, blessings. He's going to bless the world through the Messiah, through Abraham. And, of course, Abraham can have children. He turns 100. Abraham finally has Isaac. And then God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, I want you to take your only son Isaac, the son of the covenant, the son that I promised would be the one through whom I would work all of my blessings. I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham says, okay. So he goes takes Isaac, takes the servants, gets to the mountain that God told him to get to, gets to the base of the mountain, he tells the servant, stay here, Isaac and I will continue. Isaac, carry the wood. That's just not cool, by the way. Not only going to be a sacrifice, you have to carry the wood. I'll carry the knife and the torch. Dad move, typical. Isaac says to his dad, I see the wood, I see the fire, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And this is what Abraham says. Don't worry. God will provide for himself a lamb. He has required a sacrifice, and he will provide for himself a lamb. You know how the story goes, right? Abraham takes Isaac up to the top, 
binds him on the wood, is preparing to slay him. And the wording there is the angel grabs his hand with the knife and says, don't, Isaac. And over in the bushes, there's a ram caught in the thicket, and they sacrifice that lamb. God provided the lamb that Isaac might come out from under the curse that no longer does he have to die because there was another lamb that died. The Bible begins and ends with a tree, and the Bible also begins and ends with a lamb. Revelation chapter 5. You might want to turn there. If you haven't read Revelation chapter 5 this week, here we go. John is having a vision of heaven, a throne room with God on it, and lots of angels and elders worshiping and whatnot, singing lots of songs. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was on the throne a scroll written on the back and the front, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel, and the angel said, Who is worthy to open these seals? They did a search of heaven and earth, and no one could be found to open it. And John, it says, began to, to weep, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the seals. Who's that? That's Jesus, the Lion of David. Then he looked up, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a, what? God himself will provide a lamb. I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. What that means, the lamb was alive, it was walking around, but normally when you sacrifice a lamb, you slit the throat, and they would drain the blood into a basin. So what it means is this lamb, he's walking around, but his, the front of his it was kind of gross. I don't, I don't know if I want, to, I don't want to gross you out, but he looked like he had been slain. But he's not slain. He's alive. He's walking around. So the lamb has been slain, but this lamb is different than every other sacrificial lamb. This lamb raised from the dead. This lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is the lamb. When Abraham, don't worry, God will provide for himself a lamb. He was talking about Christ. And in Revelation chapter 5, he says, Here is the lamb he has conquered, both sin by dying and death by raising from the dead. He is worthy to judge those who have said, No, thank you. I don't need your sacrifice. He has been slain. He has been raised. He is the redeemer. God's plan is this, to send his own son that we might be redeemed so we can hang out in the world and have as much fun as we possibly can. Just so you know, I switched it there to see if you're still with me. He did not send a, a lamb provided by himself, a lamb who was himself, to redeem us so we could live uh, how everyone else lives. He redeems us, what? Out of coach into first class. And you can't stay in one and enjoy the other. It's redeemed out of the world into the family of God. And now we find ourselves in this place like Israel did in the wilderness we're not in Egypt anymore, are we? We're saved. Amen? But we're not in the promised land yet either. I don't know if you noticed. It's not all awesome. I mean, the Seahawks lost to the Cowboys, and the Cowboys don't have the decency to win their game. Just not, I mean, it's not right. Everybody knows it's not right. I'm sorry, that was inappropriate. In the, well, now we have this tension. Well, I'm not home yet. So, and, and the wilderness is kind of wildernessy. 
Now Egypt isn't sounding so bad. And this is the tension every single believer lives in. I am redeemed out of that place, but now I'm not home yet. Now that place doesn't seem so bad. When I got saved, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But I, th I thought Jesus was going to come back. Well, if I've got to hang out here, I may as well kind of enjoy it. The wonder of God is that he has a plan, and the plan is to redeem us out of the things of this world. To believe is to move. To be redeemed is to be redeemed out of the world and into the family of Christ. We now find ourselves still in the world, don't we? But we're not of it. We're distinct from it. Whereas Jesus says, in the world we find ourselves to be salt. That means a distinctness from the world around us that says we're different, that this isn't our home. The wonder of God is he has a plan to redeem us. He will provide for himself a lamb to save us, and that lamb is him. But the plan is to redeem us out of this world, and friendship with this world is enmity towards God. To leave coach is to go into first class. God's favor is unearned, but it has purpose. God's plan is we're redeemed out of this world, into his family, and finally, God's power. Here's the problem when we look at God's plan is we want to define for God what we really need. For example, the woman who got offered the first class plane ticket, probably what she would have argued was, thank you for the first class seat. Do you know what I would really like? Is for somebody to heal my baby. So first class is great, but at the end of the day, it's still first class with a sick kid. Am I right? That's, that's how we look at things. We say, Lord, I know what I need, and I think maybe you need some information that somehow you've missed the boat on what really is needed here. So we need to look at the wonder of God, God's power. God's power is used to save us and call us into his family. Look at Exodus chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. We're going to wrap it up with these last two verses. Exodus 11, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I'm doing that on purpose, that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land until the time was done. Pharaoh thought what the people of Israel up to, were up to was foolishness. They were going to die in the wilderness. His economy was going to be ruined even more than it already was. He looked at what they were doing as a ridiculous plan. There's no way this is going to work. The only thing that's going to happen with Israel leaving is they're going to die out there, and we're going to die here. He says, listen, I've been Pharaoh for a while. I know how these things work, and what you're doing is dumb. It just goes to say we don't always know what dumb is. I don't know if you've seen this trademark. It's a little yellow circle with a smiley face on it. Maybe you've seen it at Walmart. Have you seen that circle with a smiley face? There's a guy who drew that. Apparently, he copyrighted this thing. I don't know. And this was a long time ago. I, don't even, I, I forget how long ago. But he sold the trademark because he had drawn it and nobody wanted it. He sold the trademark for, of course, $45. And the people who bought it had this great plan. And everybody who said, you, you paid 45 bucks for the rights to a smiley face? You're dumb. You should have taken that $45 and bought a steak dinner. You'd get more out of it. They took that smiley face. I don't know if you noticed. It's just about everywhere. If you had a heartbeat, they would sell that smiley face to you, a, trade, a license to use that smiley face. 
they took that $45 investment and they owned a trademark that they were able to sell years later for $50 million. What a stupid idea. They then took that $50 million and started a little store chain called uh, Dollar General. They sold that for $500 million. These guys are idiots. Of course, now looking back, of course, who wouldn't buy the smiley face? They made half a billion dollars on a smiley face. And Pharaoh is saying to Moses, and he's saying to God, this is the dumbest plan ever. God's going to redeem you, seriously? That's foolish. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh no less than 10 times, actually more like 12 times, and were repeatedly told, you guys are morons. This will never happen. God told them to go to Pharaoh for one reason in particular. What did he, why did he want them to go to Pharaoh? So Pharaoh could tell them no. Go to Pharaoh, I want him to say no 10 or 11, maybe 12 times. So Pharaoh, I want you to hear a message that you're going to think is dumb. And Moses and Aaron, I want to give you a mission that's completely and totally ineffective. It has a 100% rate of failure. When Pharaoh finally says, yes, get out of my country, Moses and Aaron are nowhere near him. They never once got the yes that they were looking for. They had a mission that was guaranteed by God to be a 100% failure rate. This is God's power. It's his, his uh, making sure that everything is done is recognized as him doing the work, him doing the calling, him doing the redeeming. A couple of New Testament verses to touch on this. We're going to close with these. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a city, of course, in Greece. And Corinth may be most comparably among all the cities in the New Testament to our New Te- uh, to the culture in America, very sophisticated, socially very wealthy, uh, very complicated economy, uh, very in, uh, intelligent population, high literacy rate. And this is what Paul says to this culture. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He is saying to this sophisticated Corinthian culture, the word of the cross you are going to think is dumb. And it's on purpose foolishness because your intellect is not how you are going to found salvation. You are going to find salvation when God decides to draw you to himself, when your heart is humbled to receive him. Why is the cross foolishness? To the religious person, the cross makes no sense. A religious person says you find God by being good. A religious person says the cross doesn't make any sense. You don't have to be good if, if Jesus paid for it all. So the religious person will say this is foolishness. You can't have a religion and not tell people to be good. You can't be in charge. You can't get people to do what you want if they already have everything they need from God himself. This is no religion. These are a bunch of kooks. That's exactly how most of history, especially among religious institutions, have described biblical Christianity. On the other side, there are those who are non-religious or irreligious. They said, well, this is ridiculous. I don't need somebody to die for me. I'm not that bad. I'm not a murderer. 
So apparently that's the line for how you get into heaven. You just manage to go through life without killing anybody. Might want to, if you're going to earn your way to heaven, at least increase your standards. Never killed anybody on purpose. Something. The religious say, I'm good enough, I don't need Jesus. The world says, I'm not that bad, I don't need Jesus. Put them together, the cross is what? Foolishness. Here's the other way he describes it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Same church, different letter. They needed two letters. They actually got three, but we've only got two in the Bible. Here's what he says. But uh, This is 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Through Christians, God is spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere. So these are two different fragrances that he's going to describe. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So being saved, you, oh, Jesus is here. Oh, that smells refreshing. To those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death. Wait, I'm sorry, what? So among those that God is drawing to himself, Christ is an aroma of life. And then he says, oh, but by the way, for those who are perishing, Christ smells like a dead body. I don't know if you've ever smelled a dead body. It smells, well, it smells like a dead body. It's not pleasant. And he is saying, for those who are not redeemed, he said, Christ is an offense. It's not merely, oh, you have your religion, I'll have mine. To hear Christ save sinners, you're a sinner, and without Jesus, you will die in the land or under a curse like Egypt, those will say, that's horrible. That's disgusting. That's offensive to me and everybody around me. Although to those who have realized that they need a Savior, it is the, the smell of life. See, God is the one who does the saving. Pharaoh in Egypt is not going to figure it out unless God decides he ought to figure it out. The wonder of God is God's power in our life is not because we were the ones who were finally smart enough to figure it out. God made himself known to us, and by his grace, he said, I'm going to let you figure it out. We don't even get to claim any kind of right to saying we were spiritually enough to figure out Jesus. We even have to say, the fact that I recognize my need, that was still all of Christ too. Amen? Okay, one last verse. Did I say we're going to close with those? You knew I had no intention of doing that. James chapter 1. Let's talk about religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphan and widows in their affliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me put it this way. God calls us into relationship with him that is so powerful. We are willing to invest our lives in things that will never pay off. See, nowadays we think about it this way. I would really want to do something for God so that I might leave a legacy into a future generation or I might see someone's life change. Well, things were different back then for orphans and widows. Okay, orphans were never going to have an opportunity. Nowadays, things have changed in many places in the world, but not in all places of the world. Back then... It was merely survival. But that orphan was never going to be anything besides someone always living off of scraping by. So nobody thought, you know, I'm going to invest in this young person or I'm going to invest in this widow so that maybe they might make something of themselves because there's no payoff for this. 
It is merely, it's not right that a person should starve to death. It's not right that a widow should go without food. It's not right that one who has lost their family should starve. I will feed them knowing that's all that is ever going to show up in their life. See, nowadays we always think about how we might help others knowing something might come out of it. And this is why James uses this as an example. Religion is this, a willingness to invest in those from which there will be no payoff unless God decides to do something. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like what Jesus did for us. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says religion is this, a willingness to sacrifice and invest in others with not even a, a, a hint that there might be a return on our investment, not even a hint that it might be appreciated. It's merely the right thing to do. And on top of that, a desire in our heart to no longer live the way this world would have us live, to keep ourselves unstained by the world. God's power in our lives is a change of heart where we are so disconnected from the things of this world, we're willing to give them up even though we aren't going to get anything in return for them. A couple of things. Because Jesus is the Lamb, because he is the power who redeems us, because he is the one who saves us, he doesn't need you to prove yourself. I want to say that to encourage you. Some of us as Christians are convinced I have to somehow gin up the power to convince God he didn't waste his efforts on me. Because Christ did all the proving, as Christians, we no longer have a need to prove ourselves. If somebody were to ask you, how do you prove yourself and demonstrate that you are a Christian, you say, Jesus died for me, it's all I got. For those of us who doubt the claims of Christ in the Bible, we must recognize this. As long as we stay on our platforms of exalted intellect and hardness of heart, we will never see the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross is low, and it is humble, and it is foolishness. You can't outsmart God, and you must be careful not to outsmart yourself. All right, three things, and then we're done. How do we make sure we don't miss the wonder of God? First thing, recognize that the favor you have received from God, the goodness of the things he has given into our life, is completely unearned. You didn't deserve what God has given you. You've got a great life. You've got great blessings. Praise God for it, but you didn't get it because you're captain or queen awesome. You got them because God is generous. However, he has a purpose for you. And he has a purpose for the favor he has bestowed on you. We miss that purpose when we merely uh, use his favor to seek our own pleasure. However, we acknowledge that purpose when our lives are marked by generosity that is motivated through the fact that he redeemed us. Secondly, we can have the wonder of God when we recognize that his plan is to save us out of this world, not to allow us to live in it. Now, it's difficult, but we have to recognize as believers, this world is no longer our home. And when the world looks more attractive than God does, that's an opportunity for us to recognize something has gone wrong in our hearts. We need to take some time and repent and say, God, you're better than this place. Will you renew again in me a love for you that is so deep? I yearn more for the world that is to come than I do for the world that I'm in right now. Recognize that a life of redemption in Christ is a life where? In the wilderness, not Egypt. Jesus said it this way, count the cost. 
following me is defined by carrying a cross. It's in the wilderness. Finally, we need to recognize that God has the power to change us and to change others. We mentioned this a little bit last week. Sometimes we get frustrated with the fact that we are not like Jesus yet, but sometimes we get frustrated even more when the people around us aren't either. Finally, the number one way in which you can see the power of God work in your heart to overcome sin, in your heart to overcome the things of this world, and to see that happen in the lives of the people around you is to pray for one another. Pray that we might overcome sin. Pray that we might not succumb to temptation. Pray that when we do, we quickly fall on our knees and receive the grace of Christ. God promises he will make us like Jesus, and he promises to give, our, give us hearts ready to believe.